I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Wednesday, June 20th, 2018, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Donald Trump has signed an executive order undoing a policy he described as not a policy, period. And I guess that shows that he alone can solve it after he alone screwed it up in the first place. Uh, There's a problem that's gone on for many years, as you know. Untrue. So step by step, just like we dealt with North Korea, we dealt with Iran, we dealt with an economy that was heading in the wrong direction, we dealt with a lot of different problems. Uh, This is one that has been gone on for many decades. So we're keeping families together, and this will solve that problem. That I alone created a few months ago and then lied about and then blamed on someone else. But you know what? The buck stops here. No, it doesn't. It's not even a buck. Under the Democrats, the buck is weak. Nancy Pelosi destroyed the buck. I know the value of a buck. Believe me. By the way, is he associating his economic policy, his Iranian policy, his Korean policy with this policy, this little turdlet of inhumanity? That'd be like Kennedy saying, We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because like the Bay of Pigs, they are hard. We did the Bay of Pigs. We are going to do the moon too. Powerful, strong, powerful moon. And then Kennedy spent some time mocking Representative James Berea Frazier, who had lost his nomination from Tennessee. On the show today in the spiel, we check in with some other powerful people in the administration doing the right thing. The Council of Human Rights, barely human, and that ain't right. But first, he helped Barack Obama win the nomination and then navigate through the presidency. Now he is host of Pod Save America alongside a ragtag group of other actually extremely highly credentialed former administration staffers. I asked Dan Pfeiffer and his people, can you guys come in? And they said, yes, we still can. Dan Pfeiffer is here. Dan Pfeiffer was the White House communications director in President Obama's first term, which means that he was in charge of what you heard and what they said. And then in the second term, he moved to senior advisor for strategy and communications, which means he decided why they said it. Dan Pfeiffer is also, you might know the voice as uh, one of the hosts of Pod Save America, and he's out with a new book, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. Hello, Dan. How are you? Thanks for having me. Right now, do we have political parties, really, or do we just have a couple of free-floating tribes, and whoever gets the nomination gets to describe and appeal to those tribes? I think it's probably closer to the latter than the former. Just there have been so many changes that have have diminished the ability of party infrastructure mm-hmm. to actually do things, right? It, you saw this in 2016 with Republicans. They wanted to stop Trump. Part of it was fear, mm-hmm. but also they had no ability to do so because what the DNC or the RNC chair says is not influential to voters. The process is set up in for a good reason, in my view, that voters actually decide this. You know, superdelegates are an issue, but 
that I would frankly change if it was up to me. But ultimately, I find it hard. You mean to, you do away their power with yes, their power, diminish it. I don't. I think wasn't that the power that made the Democrats more rational than the Republicans? But I think the we're, backstop. I don't. I can't imagine a world now where the superdelegates could undo the will of the voters. Yes, but there are other ways that superdelegates are more important than, you know, the caucus goers in uh, Wyoming, for instance. I, I mean, uh, I, I know it's yeah. not in case of emergency break glass yeah. and there's Don of Brazil to yeah. save us. Right. But the superdelegates being this huge portion of the of the uh, uh, primary vote that's out there mm-hmm. having declared that makes things seem like this is where we're going to go. I think that there is something to that. I th- look, I think. What matters most is what the voters want. And, sure, of course. That's what and, matters and, most. And Democrats have – sometimes we have nominated candidates who are less electable than others. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we know now after both Obama and Trump is yep. no one knows what the word electable means anymore. The, the traditional views of electability, we're all wrong about all the time. Do you favor the plank of many progressives of a guaranteed job for all Americans? I think it is one. I'm very interested in the idea. Uh-huh. I, I don't know enough to say it's the it is the right policy, and, and all these things, the devil's in the details. I think, and I, what I very much look forward to, and maybe this is trying to find a silver lining here, but we're going to have 25, 30 people run in our party. Yeah, and I hope what comes out of that is a giant discussion about messaging and democratic strategy, but also a debate about some of these big issues. Right, so. You know, Medicare for all, like what is the form of that? Is it the Sanders plan? Is it an option to buy into Medicare phasing in? Is it something else? I think universal basic income should be part of that discussion. Uh I think the federal jobs guarantee is very interesting. What is very clear is that our democratic policy agenda, the economic agenda we've been running on for a long time, Barack Obama achieved some of it. Some of it has become outdated by time, and we haven't really updated it. We should still fight for minimum wage, for a $15 minimum wage and things like that, but there needs to be more, something that speaks to the dislocation that people feel, because the economy is changing so fast. And we, we do some positive America all the time. We ask Democratic politicians, what do you say to voters who are concerned about globalization, automation, all these things that are changing their economic lives? And no one has a good answer yet. Yeah. Right? And we need, we need to have that answer if we want to win, because the candidate wins the economic argument wins the election usually. I think that you're absolutely right. We, the Democrats need to have a policy that speaks to the economic anxiety of Democratic voters. But if that policy is a guaranteed job, I have not seen hide nor hair of any, you know, fine details and devil being in the details where that is logical. Mm. And why I asked you about it is it does seem, that seems to be the latest program that everyone got behind and everyone talked up and it was described as we need big ideas to go against Trump's ideas. But what if they're big, terrible ideas? Well, we should, like, I'm definitely against big, terrible ideas. and But, small but terms- a job, a guaranteed job for everyone... I can't see how it's a big swing that would actually be better for America than worse. It may not be. Mm-hmm. And I think that – when I say the devil in the details is like basically once you get beyond the words federal jobs. Do you, do, much, do you, Dan, really think that it's possible that it will be? I know you're saying it may not be because you don't want to quash the enthusiasm for no, Democrats. I, I, I don't want to impart motive yeah. to you. But you're so smart and you understand economics. Yeah. It yeah. seems such a non-starter. It, I don't know that it's a non-starter. We, okay. like, we, I think we have to have a revolutionary approach to how we think about these things. And here's what I don't want to have happen is political strategists like myself who look at po- at focus groups to then go and say that is don't do that. That's a bad idea. Don't talk about it. Even like let's have the debate about it. If some candidate wants to run on that, yeah. we'll do it. 
Like, I'm not ready to be like some sort of gatekeeper to interesting ideas, but we should, we should have a thoughtful discussion. We shouldn't move like lemmings toward every quote unquote cool idea now to avoid being the one senator or the one candidate who's not for it. Because that then that we're, we're going to waste our time in the primary. We're going to fight over dumb issues instead of the big issues, which we need to fight about. Okay. So here's my last thing I want to talk about. Since you left office, we've all been trying to figure out how is it that Trump's been able to do what he does, some mix of propaganda. Mm. I didn't realize the web was so potent, maybe. Mm. I didn't realize uh, Fox News was so virulent. I didn't realize that birtherism wasn't this fringe element. We're all trying to figure it out. Have you, to any extent, questioned how much the real-life impact of policies weigh on people? Because I've been questioning that, and it does seem to me that when the economy was in these dire straits and Donald Trump won on a lot of messages, including, you know, America is fundamentally broken and we had unemployment of like 4.8%. And now that we have unemployment of 3.9%, that 1% difference is not the difference between a horror show and a nirvana. And yet, it's not just being argued that it is, it's being felt that it is by so many people. I wonder how much reality actually affects people's voting and people's uh, perception of politics. I think the true personal impact that people feel towards the economy affects their vote. Yeah. I think that has always been true. It's still true. What I think we have to be careful about is people's views of the economy are partisan litmus tests. Yes. So in the height of the financial crisis, when it, when people were just getting battered by, as Obama was trying to clean up Bush's mess, the groups who told pollsters that they approved of Obama's handling the economy by the largest margin were African-Americans and Latinos, who by statistics were suffering the most. The recession. Right. Yeah. And then when Trump won yeah. in the first Gallup economic index poll after Trump won, the numbers about who approved of the economy stated about economic approval itself stayed about the same. But the groups of people who felt that way completely reversed. Yes. So Trump supporters who would who so many of whom, despite the caricature, are quite wealthy mm -hmm. and did very well under the Obama economy, who said it was terrible under Obama. Nothing had changed. It was yeah. the same economy. Obama was still president, but they flipped. So it's a partisan litmus test. I think we have to I have to believe I wouldn't be in politics if policy didn't affect people's lives and affect it, their choices. But do you think then tariffs will be felt by people who should feel the pain of tariffs or will it just be a litmus test? I think their Democrats have a very real opportunity to make an argument on tariffs and it's going to be it's going to be narrow cast because there's only a small percentage of people that you're trying to persuade here. Mm -hmm. It's people who voted for Trump but don't approve of him. Maybe they voted for Trump because they thought he was going to lose. Maybe they were on the fence and then the Comey letter tipped him over. I, I sort of call these people Comey voters. And then there are the people who voted for third-party candidates or didn't vote, mm -hmm. right? Can we make an argument to them? And I've, always, I've argued the Democrats should make a case against Republicans and Trump arguing on two fronts, chaos and corruption. And the tariffs are the perfect, are the real-world consequence of Trump's erratic behavior. I think you, you're going to have to show people how it affects them. Because, yeah. And this is where we have to be very precise and strategic in our messaging and our message delivery, which is if we're waiting for the news media, which is rightfully obsess obsessed with Russia, that's not a mistake on their part. This could be the largest political scandal in world yeah. history. But you want people to learn through the media about how tariffs impact their lives. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to carry that message on the campaign trail. You're going to have to do it through digital advertising. You have to do it through social media. And it has to be done with precision. It has to be done with relentless discipline. Because they're going to have to find factual proof that these soybean farmers and maybe even those guys yeah. in the carrier plant are suffering. Yeah. You need, I think you need real-world testimonials from people that you can show them. All right. All right. You want to do my quiz? I don't know if this okay. will work. Here we go. Is this what's in my book? Yeah, this is what's in your book. So listeners should know you went all David Foster Wallace on us. Lots of footnotes. 
I'm going to give you the footnote. I'll read the footnote, and you tell me to what it referred. Okay. I'm going to remind you of your subconscious, and then you remind me of what your conscious okay. was. This, this is going to be hard. You ready? I'm ready. Footnote five, they didn't find anything. They didn't find anything. In, the Republicans investigating Obama. Yes. Congress were launching politicized investigations into Obama administration activities in the hopes of finding wrongdoing somewhere. Excellent, excellent. All right, we go to the next mm. one. Parentheses, mostly well-meaning. Mostly well-meaning. Mostly well-meaning. It was referring to the press. Yes. With what did you refer to the White House press corps? How did you describe them? The well-meaning mo- what? Mo- well-meaning horde of jackals. Yes, the well-meaning horde of jackals. Yes. And then you add mostly well-meaning. All right, here's one. <laughs> The greatest moment in Drake's life. That would be uh, <laughs> Kanye describing Drake as his rival uh, in the same way that Adidas was Nike's rival, Pepsi was Coke's rival, and the Republicans were Barack Obama's rival. Yes. Since the book, by the way, since the book came out, did you, ha- did you think of rewriting the Kanye chapter? Well, it's All the- your praise and love for Kanye. I stand by my praise for Kanye's musical genius, but uh-huh. I will say the thing I was most nervous about in the book was that section, th- this fear that... Kanye and Obama had patched it back up. I was going to tell this story. I was going to have the uh, the quote from Obama in there describing right. his view of Kanye's uh, that, that shit cray that shit cray, <laughs> and that that would somehow like upset the apple cart of this, their newfound friendship. Between turning in the final edit of the book, uh, many things have changed as it relates to Kanye. I no longer have this fear that our MAGA hat wearing uh, hip hop friend. Would somehow be. I didn't really care if you'd be upset about it, frankly. Yes, we still can. Politics in the age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. The author is Dan Pfeiffer. Dan, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. For a second there, I said to myself, oh my God, Nikki Haley's doing it. She's taking her staff. And they're quitting the Trump administration. We take this step because our commitment does not allow us to remain a part of a hypocritical and self-serving organization that makes a mockery of human rights. But no, the organization that makes a mockery of human rights is the United Nations Human Rights Council. Another irony is that the UN Council on Mockery, total shambles, so obsessed with human rights that they can't even get out of bed in the morning and mock anyone as their charter demands. That will hurt the scheduled UN pantomime, the yearly lampooning of other UN member states. The Human Rights Council, I do have to say, is neither very humane and is often not even right. Discuss. Since it was founded in 2006, a a vestige of the similarly troubled Human Rights Commission, this council found itself in the crosshairs of impatient American administrations who couldn't stomach being lectured by the likes of some of the world's worst abusers of human rights. Nikki Haley laid it out. When a so-called Human Rights Council cannot bring itself to address the massive abuses in Venezuela and Iran, and it welcomes the Democratic Republic of Congo as a new member, the council ceases to be worthy of its name. And she threw in a few more bad actors into the mix for good measure. Russia, China, Cuba, and Egypt. Outside observers wavered between the two polarities about inclusion in this council, one being, look, it's imperfect, but it's better for the United States to use moral suasion to direct this flawed institution 
into a positive direction. Whereas the counter thinking was, F these guys. Now, since we're living in the We're America Bitches administration, you could guess which path was ultimately chosen. And while I, as a non-harumphing, fuller-brush, mustache-wearing ideologue, would have preferred to stay members of the Trump administration, like John Bolton, who does have prominent facial hair and, before being hired, was seen outside the Fox News loading dock holding a sign saying, Will Bluster for money. He wanted out. You know, this decision, in many respects, has been decades in the making. The Human Rights Council... Like I said, the council only existed since 2006. I don't know if you pluralize decade at the... 12-year mark. But anyway, Bolton, to be fair to him, and he would call me a some, something like a naked-lipped weenie, he doesn't have the worst point in the world. And I say this so I retain some credibility for next time when I point out that Bolton does, in fact, have the worst point in the world. That happens quite a bit. But this council had it out for Israel. Not that Israel doesn't transgress, but one day in March, they passed seven anti-Israeli resolutions. Their anti-Israeli resolutions added up were more than all their other resolutions combined. Some of these anti-Israeli resolutions were fine. Like, you know, you really probably shouldn't use live ammo against protesters. Others were more along the lines of how dare Israel be invited into the Eurovision Song Contest? They're not even in Europe. On the day of the seven resolutions, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said in a tweet that the motions were, quote, more resolutions detached from reality by the circus of the absurd known as the Human Rights Council. He even suggested that the Human Rights Council change its name to the Council for Resolutions Against the Only Democracy in the Middle East, which would be the great acronym Kafra to Ditmi. I think that has legs, or I guess as they would say in Hebrew, Emtid at Arfk. And listen, if you're worried that without the moral authority of this one council, a council that includes Venezuela and Congo criticizing Israel, that Israel will walk around not knowing that the international community condemns them, I wouldn't worry. Israel knows that the international community condemns them. Pretty much the rest of the UN, including the UN Council on Mockery, makes it abundantly clear that they don't like what Israel's doing. But that's not to say that the US necessarily took the high ground in leaving the council. There are a lot of reasonable observers who are quite critical of this council. I mean, it does include China and Congo and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, Saudi Arabia. It was even chaired by the Saudis one of the most repressive countries in the world. But if you notice in those clips I played for you, and I didn't keep any out, that Nikki Haley never mentioned the prominent role the Saudis had on this council. Notice how when she and Pompeo listed the bill of particulars denigrating the authority of the council, they left out perhaps the most disqualifying. So the problem with the council is that it includes violators of human rights, except that one extremely egregious violator of human rights, who is the United States' preferred violator of human rights. When the Trump administration quits and made its case in quitting that this council doesn't deserve the legitimacy of the United States, but then they go around the world committing acts and even in describing how and why they quit, they do their best to put a dent in that legitimacy going forward. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname deserves credit for being the far-seeing oracle who alone could find his 
car keys. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, wants it to be known that she alone can address the menace of Mary Wilson projectile vomiting syndrome. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, says, where is the thank you for suspending the habit of continually asking for praise? Thanks again to Slate Plus listeners. You help support the show. If you want to learn about some of the benefits of membership, including ad-free versions of this show, go to slate.com slash gist plus. The gist, we have just ended the practice of crapping in our diaper. Nobody ever talks about that. Nobody knew how bad that would smell. Where's the credit? Doom-peru, de and thanks for listening. <laughs>